and I've been in touch with folks as they've been going through a storm and um, experiencing it and needing somebody to be on the phone with them. And then in that direct aftermath, you're working with folks who their plans have probably not worked the way they were intending. And the last thing they need to hear is that what they need at that point is help. Hi, I'm Heidi Harriet. Welcome to Animal Tales, where we talk about my favorite subject, animals. If you have a pet at home, you might have considered what you would do in an emergency or if you have to evacuate. Well, imagine now one of your favorite zoos or an animal facility and what they might do in an emergency, whether within their facility or a natural disaster where they have to evacuate. Historically, animal experts have been wonderful about coming together and assisting each other within their facilities and organizations. However, there now exists an official organization, Zoological Disaster Response, Rescue and Recovery, better known as ZDR3. I'm talking with the executive director, Julie Wagner, about what's involved when these larger facilities with non-domesticated animals face some type of a crisis and how ZDR comes to the rescue. I think it's an episode and discussion you're going to enjoy and even learn a little bit about what to do with your pet during one of these emergencies. Hi, Julia. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So we're, um, this is going to be an interesting conversation. I've certainly been aware of what you folks do, but if you'll tell our listeners ZDR3, what exactly you, the organization does and what your role is. Uh, Zoological Disaster Response uh, Rescue Recovery, ZDR3, is a mutual aid network consisting of over 150 zoological facilities, aquariums, sanctuaries, basically entities who are holding non-domesticated animals. We have a network that, uh, as a nonprofit, when needed, we are able to actually coordinate and help activate these different entities to support one another before, during, and after disaster. Our industry has always been amazing about helping one another with peer-to-peer support. That's part of being animal people is we want to take care of each other. We want to help each other take care of their animals. And so ZDR3 helps make that more possible by uh, bringing more solidification to that communications network and those strategies for deployment. Fantastic. So you've organized and um, in, a, in an industry that's been very good about responding to this stuff. It certainly makes sense to, to be more organized and strategic. I grew up in the exhibited animal industry and circuses, fairs, special events, and even zoos where we did shows and trained animals. And I'm proud of the fact that many of our, especially our elephant and big cat um trainers in the early days of zoos, one were the go-to experts, but also the transportation side of it, because we had, we had pretty much figured that out. That was, we were mobile by virtue of our shows. So it was, it's pretty cool to, when I think back about the fact that they brought in, they brought in folks from our industry to help out when they had to transport animals whether it was disaster or moving from one to the next. Um, so I assume like hurricane, fire, flood type thing, what, are there other things that I'm missing, maybe disease or that, that would cause some kind of an evacuation or that? 
ZDR3 formed in um, 2019, but the impetus was a hurricane in 2017 that impacted the Houston area of Texas. There was a lot of flooding as a result, and the recognition was there that there needed to be more coordination among zoological facilities in order to render aid to one another. So where we really began was the Atlantic hurricanes and tracking those incoming storms that allows for a lot of time to mobilize assets, but you're also looking at potentially larger impacted areas and strategies associated with bringing resources in from long distances. But we do cover other disasters as well. And so our strategies have modified as we work to help people after they've had um, tornadic impact or after uh, we've dealt with typhoon in Pacific. And that's a whole different strategy when you're going out to Guam. So we've really had to think through how the strategies that were developed for the Atlantic hurricane season have been um, applicable to these other types of disasters that folks are facing. Okay. So is it a scenario, I'm sure there's a lot of different scenarios, but one where you're coming in with equipment or you're rallying uh, folks who have the appropriate equipment to actually evacuate animals and then possibly care for them at their facility or take them somewhere else? That is exactly what it is. So ZDR3 is a staff. There are three of us who are actually ZDR3 core staff. And then the folks who are really conducting the work, those are the network facilities. So those are zoo peer colleagues who are coming in with the appropriate equipment for the job at hand. Um, At times we do have responsibilities associated with the animals, but something we're very clear about is we are never coming in and taking over a location. The ownership of that location are always the ones making the decisions, including about any sort of animal movement, where those animals are going. And so the incoming teams are under their direction. um, And then depending on the nature of the task, are able to work uh, autonomously. For instance, if the goal is to clear a whole area of trees, then a crew of sawyers can go in and handle that. If the task at hand is doing an evacuation, then there's a lot more integration with the owner, the veterinarian, um, whomever is appropriate based on the nature of the movement. So we cover a wide swath of basically service areas based on what's happened at a facility. Anyone who's worked in the zoo industry um, or at a facility housing non-domesticated animals understands we have very unique challenges and that's why we need to help one another. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is uh, Mike Foraker from uh, Fort Worth Zoo, I believe, was uh, telling me about this and... um, it, we, I thought it was amazing because just to, to, again, to organize it, to, to have a central port of, point of organization. Um, excuse me. So you, it's any animals, it can be cats, elephants, or any type of exotics. And then you, you find the expertise. Um, well, the folks holding the animals have the expertise. You guys come in, coordinate with them to help them figure out what their what their plan needs to be or help them coordinate. Precisely. Um, we are subject matter experts in a few key areas, including sure. how to coordinate subject matter experts. And so <laughs> one of the, <laughs> one of the most, crit- yeah, well, you can't know everything at a zoo. There's so many species we cover. That's yeah. so, such a range. And so having this diverse network and that's where being a whole industry initiative is really key because you have areas of knowledge that really complement one another when you start working across these very different business models 
models with folks who normally wouldn't necessarily interface. When it comes to disaster, we really are able to lay things at the door we wouldn't normally. And we are able to pair up assets and needs in a way that has really, I think, amplified the cause that everyone can get behind, which is let's provide better support to the animals and people who are being impacted by these increasing adverse events we're seeing. Yeah. You know, interestingly, it's probably been longer than I think, but let's say within the last 10 years, I would say five years, some of the California fires, there was a sanctuary out there that was very anti-exhibited animal, anti-zoo, all of that. And um, it was the, the fire was fast approaching. It was towards the northern side of California. And some of the um, one particular uh, folks here that have elephants actually had their semi ready to go help them and they refused to move their animals. Some of them they can't move. They didn't have the expertise. Um, they were elephants and it was, it was a sad, it, it ended up okay, but there was a lot of concern because they weren't letting the experts in to help them. Uh, sometimes you don't know what you don't know. Some of those elephants were, uh, gathered from uh, performing scenarios, so they loaded right in vehicles and stuff, but they would not let the rest of the industry help, and it was really a shame, and one of the reasons I don't put a lot of store in sanctuaries, one of, just one of the reasons, because they don't collaborate in the same way, and they're not necessarily experts on this stuff, these, these scenarios. Uh, but that was a story that upset me, so I heard, when I heard you guys were doing this, I was excited about that because I know that there'll be more animals that will be helped and more expertise to spread around for sure. So um, any interesting stories about animals you've had to move or different species or such? So you'd be amazed. I don't get asked this question very often and I'm careful the stories that I do tell. Um, we have conducted response operations in all sorts of different scenarios. And some of the things that stick out most are when you see people go above and beyond and um, really perform in environments you wouldn't expect. So when you're, you know, up to your knees in flooded water and the assessment that you've done is, yes, we know there are probably wild boars out here with us, but the chainsaw activity will probably keep them at bay. Like, <laughs> One would hope. <laughs> so these become like very normalized elements for some of us who are on the vanguard of response. And that's really, I think the key is the kind of outlandish wild stories. Those yeah. are more happening during the event. That's what the facilities are experiencing who are going through this. And we're coming in usually at about a 24 to 36 hour lag time is what we are finding for our first folks. And that's usually myself, others. And by then things are reasonably contained. That is the hope. Um, because we have assets that are coming in from a distance generally, we have folks understanding that we are not a 911 solution. Yeah. That being said, part of what we have to do when we go on a scene is really assess the risk and assess what animals might be out, what situations might still be occurring. Um, I've been handed things like a, a bucket and I feel the bucket move and I carefully check to make sure that there's a lid on the bucket and then I query <laughs> what's in it. Um, but our goal is to ensure that it's not folks coming in from these other facilities who are being exposed to um, these types of interesting scenarios that can sometimes arise. And one of our big goals is making sure that, that 
what we do is being conducted in a safe manner and also in a discreet manner. Um, you alluded to the fact earlier, this industry, it can be very challenging to work across different lines. And with ZDR3, because we are very careful about releasing information, it means yeah. that at times we're able to have folks engage and help each other who don't necessarily even want that publicized, but we're able to accomplish the end goal. Yeah, I, I think uh, it's certainly one of the, the biggest benefits of being organized in this way, because again, having grown up around exotic animals and everybody rallying around the cause, but more and more that can also turn around and, and bite you for some ridiculous reason, but nonetheless. So, you know, and I also think, as you just said, uh, like a smaller facility, maybe you have a couple experts there and then you have some animal keepers, but the person having to make this decision may feel you know, yes, they ha they're an expert, but they're, there's so much going on. I can totally appreciate where someone with your knowledge base coming in or you rallying some other expertise to help them. Um, we all go through that in life where we have to make a big decision and we might doubt ourselves even though we know because we're trying to go it alone. So I can only imagine the comfort level there. I've been there myself with my horses you know, saying, I th I'm pretty sure this is what I need to do, but your judgment is clouded. Your animals either hurt or there's something crazy going on. So what a, what a wonderful, uh, storm port in the storm that you guys are providing. I know that, that, um, I've done a lot of crisis management and again, growing up with exotics for those, again, our listeners are people who don't necessarily aren't animal experts, right? I'm just doing the podcast to try to put um, animal experts out there to talk to kind of lay people who don't have animals because there's so much misinformation, so much emotion and ideology surrounding animals. And um, one of the things that people may not know, if you own exotic animals or you keep exotic animals, you're required by our federal government to have an emergency plan. It's written out. It's a requirement of um, exhibiting animals and owning the animals. Um, that being said, you're like right now with you guys on the scene. I would think you're actually getting written in, written into, written into emergency plans. That if you get to this level of the emergency, that you will be contacting ZDR. I that's probably pretty cool. I don't know if you could speak to that more. Absolutely. So um, the USDA did uh, publish a new rule that requires that we do have contingency planning for USDA licensees. The timing, it makes sense in terms of um, post Katrina's when that really began rolling. It's just contemporaneous that I think the really recent things that uh, folks are seeing in the media related to adverse event intensity, it's really kicked up the focus within the industry and from our regulatory agencies on the concern of what do we do in these situations. And to your point, we do get written into contingency plans because one of the things that I think folks have a really hard time doing with planning is facing that really difficult what if scenario. Yeah. It's, uh, it's comfortable planning to the point that you've historically experienced or that you can reasonably conceptualize but planning past that point of comfort is a very challenging exercise that unless and until you do it, 
you aren't going to understand your own limitations. And as ZDR3, we really want to message what we can and cannot do for folks. That's why we're very clear about things like what our response time is like, what our resources are like. And we have conversations with our network participants who have specific concerns to identify, okay, where are the areas that we can reasonably fill that gap and where are areas that we need to find additional solutions. But the idea of planning into catastrophe is one that we really need to better embrace as an industry because when you end up in those situations, that is not the time that you're going to come up with innovative solutions because as you already alluded to, you are compromised at that point as a leader and you cannot plan assuming that you are going to rise to some next level um, state of being. You, You may fall. And so you need to plan so that you have those backups in place so that your animals are cared for appropriately. Yeah. At the end of the day, as with all the stories on this podcast, the the biggest concern, what's what's in the best interest of the animals? And as animal experts, that's where our first thoughts and minds go. And that's why I take such issue with animal rights and animal protection groups, because what they're putting out there that they're trying to sell as what's right for the animals is oftentimes incongruous with what's actually appropriate for the animals. You just said something that made me think back to um, that when people are writing their contingency plans, their emergency plans, they're thinking of historically what's happened, right? It's hard to either A, have the vision to look forward or to even want to think about it. And I equate that to uh, when my husband and I wrote our will when the kids were little. Took me years because every time I got to the port where I wasn't around and I had little kids, I couldn't I couldn't do it. I put it away and couldn't do it. So I fully appreciate that uh, it, it can be a hard thing to do. I've also been the head trainer at equestrian theaters. And one of the things I always am concerned about is our contingency plan if we have a horse that goes down either backstage or during the show when there's all these cameras now. And I can't tell you how many of the owners of the places I've worked do not want to go down this road because they don't want to think about what that looks like. And so whether it's an escaped animal or, you know, in the, what you guys are doing, a uh, um, natural disaster, you, you there's a part of you just wants to pull the covers over your head and say, I don't want to think about that because that's just crazy. And then you guys come on the scene and offer assistance on that front. Probably even, am I incorrect or correct in assuming that people are would reach out to you as well to even ask like, as they're creating their plans, what to include? We have the pleasure of working with our network members and it, it's free to join the network. That's been one of our big um, areas to ensure there's not barriers to oh, entry. Okay, great. And, and so our network members, um, we work with them depending on if they have questions or what they need. Uh, I've worked with folks on contingency plans for transports, um, their own contingency plans. That's not to say that I'm going to go in and write a contingency plan or modify a contingency plan, but in terms of where it makes sense to include the types of things that ZDR3 network members have historically rendered to one another. And I think that offers folks the opportunity to think through 
what that next level of response looks like for them, because the idea of bringing folks onto your property and having them assist, that's very challenging. Uh, and that's something that opens up a whole lot of conversations about, well, where would people stay? Would they stay here? Would they stay nearby? What would a work day look like? There's this whole can of worms associated with bringing in outside assistance, whether it's ZDR3 network participants or another outside mm-hmm. entity. Um, and then from there, I've worked with folks uh, as storms are coming in on them. We do reach outs. We're in communication with those who are of most concern and also those entities that might be most able to render aid. And I've been in touch with folks as they've been going through a storm and um, experiencing it and needing somebody to be on the phone with them. And then in that direct aftermath, you're working with folks who their plans have probably not worked the way they were intending. And the last thing they need to hear is that what they need at that point is help. Yeah, I can appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. You've got it all written out. You've planned for it and it's not coming together or working out the way you thought. And again, just having a resource there, I would, I, I mean, just, understanding this industry, there could be dozens of you guys and there wouldn't be enough, right? (laughs) I'm sure you're, I know you're a busy lady. It has definitely been a busier year than previous, um, including we had the pleasure of assisting in California in January uh, with a small zoo evacuation where the animals were housed for three weeks at a neighboring facility, which was incredibly generous of them. And when we are engaging those types of operations, we really our animal first in our thought process, but a lot of that, and anybody who's an animal person understands, you have to take care of the people and human element in order for them to succeed at caring for their animals. And those animals, their caretakers are who they're going to cue off of the most. So when we're looking at how to strategize an operation like an evacuation, how can we best keep the caretakers in touch with, in, um, whenever possible with their animals or what are we doing to make sure they're engaged in that care process. So that was a lot of thought process that went into three weeks of offsite holding. Um, And then we had a couple of debris removal jobs throughout the year due to ice storms um, and other types of storms. And then in the middle of the year, I actually went out to Guam uh, at the request. Um, We were contacted by USDA who asked if we would be willing to communicate with the Guam Zoo and Guam Zoo chose to onboard into our network at which point I got on a plane and I had the pleasure of serving them for a week on the ground, figuring out strategies for bringing in resources into a situation that was very different than driving a convoy to Florida. This, um, it was a different challenge. And that's one of the things that we're always thinking about as ZDR3 is how can we better enhance what we already have so that we can meet these next level challenges that we're being confronted with. Yeah. Um, I, you know, having grown up with grown up with trained animals, one of the concerns I have in the zoological world, especially AZA facilities, it seems, is their desire for the bigger animals, the protected contact, and um, not not training like you know it's not enriching to train our animals or that. I I'm a third generation trainer and my dad and grandfather and sisters have all dealt with exotics more than myself because I've been on my own more often. Uh, but the foundation training and such is so important. And then Dr. Schmidt, who uh, is responsible for the most Asian elephant babies outside of Southeast Asia, 
here in the in uh, living in the United States talks about the fact that you know being able to breed elephants and get around them and do that uh, is so important with trained elephants. It it worries me that we again through the animal rights pushing saying that it's not appropriate to train animals or use a bull hook or whatever it is that they, the latest thing makes your job more dangerous because we, when we have trained animals and people who've been around and trained, they're much more calm and relaxed. They roll with it a lot easier. So from, from thinking about your perspective and when I have helped have to move animals or we've had issues where we had to move animals I know that it's a lot easier when they have that, um, you know, one-on-one relationships and training and such. So I'm just thinking along those lines for you guys, how, how much different that is than it used to be. So disaster as a topic is not one that our industry is comfortable with. Um, yeah. It's not something that you generally see featured at conferences. It's uh, an area that a lot of folks are very uncomfortable with in general. And I see that permeating therefore every space including legislative and regulatory changes where those same types of challenging what if questions and look evaluation of unintended consequences it's not only not happening in general but it's certainly not going to happen as regards disaster considerations and what you bring up is really relevant and valid because the manner in which animals are being cared for or managed on a day-to-day basis translates directly to how they're going to uh, react to and how you can manage them in a crisis situation. Yeah. And the reality is there are limitations that you run into when you have animals that require immobilization to load or for whom these are experiences they are not accustomed to. Um, and the challenge I see is that because folks oftentimes don't play out to that what if scenario or, or catastrophic scenario, you then find decisions having to be made that they haven't even considered that this could be a decision they have to face. And I wish, and I appreciate, I wish this was more of a space that was discussed and I appreciate you taking the time to discuss it because it does make our jobs harder. Those of us who are in the field when we are running into the unintended consequences of decisions on the ground immediately after a disaster event. Yeah. And for, for again, people who are not animal experts or, you know, maybe a lot of people don't even have pets at this point, when you have to tranquilize an animal to move them or to care for them or do veterinary care, it's, it's a, the, the, the more exotic the animal and the larger the animal, the more dangerous that is. So when I was young, my father, you know, training was the way out and the way up and the way to make everything better. So uh, it, he was always really nervous if we had to tranquilize an animal and sometimes even like a zebra for hoof care, you know, those kinds of things that we didn't have to do, but you see and um, can be dangerous. So I can only imagine adding the disaster part. Hopefully some of our peers will be listening and they'll add some of these, uh, these in it conferences, because you're right. Like I said, even at equestrian theaters, my bosses did not want to talk about the, what if the worst case scenario. And that's where my mind goes because I've grown up in so many, so many diverse scenarios right now when I'm home and not traveling, I train dogs. I help people just obedience training, not tricks or anything, just, behaving and that. 
And I'm adamant that they have to use a kennel. We have to kennel train their dog, crate train, cage, whatever you call it. Because I explained to them that it's one thing if you're home and life goes on as it is. The minute there's an issue, I live in Florida, evacuations aren't uncommon. You can't take a loose dog to a shelter if they allow shelters. The, the, when they allow animals, they have to be in a kennel and they're in a separate room. So now your dog is absolutely freaking out because it's not been in the kennel. And you said something earlier, how the caretakers react. You're freaking out because you don't have a dog who rolls with everything in any situation. I thought that was very profound that one of the things about disaster training is not only thinking of the animals, but the people, because when people get nervous and get out of sorts and that the animals are totally bouncing off our energy. So you're going to, you're going to make a, a situation even worse um, and again, I, I'm proud to have grown up in an industry where our animals just kind of looked at everything as inquisitive as opposed to scared. Like, oh, that's different today. What's going on? And as people, we were tuned in to just kind of handle it that way. You know, nothing to see here. Just a different place. We're just somewhere else, you know. And um, and also seeing animals that, particularly elephants, that you say load up many and she walks over and steps up in the track and turns herself around and gets in her place. So it's it's been a really neat way to grow up. And that's why this really intrigued me, this conversation and the idea of you guys um, creating a more organized way to handle. And I know it's not all transport either. Some of it, as you said, is just going in and helping sort out what to do at the facility. Do is on the facility um, that's really uh, facility and operations work. And these folks who are coming in and running saws, running heavy equipment, um, helping make sure that they can actually be functional in their space. Yeah. They're folks who I don't think are always appreciated for the role they hold within the zoos because our ops guys, they have to understand not just how to do their specialized job, but how to do it in an environment where they're specialized animals. And then you add to that for the folks who are responding. And then it's potentially a compromised physical environment because they're considering things that aren't just how do we get the tree removed? But also, is this a location where if we start our saws, we're going to upset the birds? We Do we need to talk to the keepers? Yeah. As much as possible, like you would like to think that a facility would think all this through and they would have, you know, let us know about every potential animal issue. The reality is they are having their own crisis. And so it's incumbent upon us to really help them consider their potential risks and concerns for their animal safety and welfare. Because something I really emphasize to folks is after the initial hit of the disaster, you can still have cascading animal welfare impact. You can still have adverse things happen and you can harm people in your attempt to help them yeah. if you aren't mindful of how you're coming in and behaving in the location. Yeah. And the other thing I know with animal places and um, for zoos, probably not as much unless it's a really maybe a smaller zoo because Zoos actually have the people who care for the animals typically are payroll and staff. But I know Kay Rosaire, um, who's a mutual friend who has the big cat habitat down in Sarasota. We, she did an early podcast episode with me and we talked about some folks down here in Florida who are kind of anti-zoo and anti 
everybody should get rid of their animals, but yet um, they actually use volunteers to feed and care for the animals. That, I can only imagine what you guys encounter if you come into a, a situation like that, because it's it's fine when it's all going well. But now you've got, you know, people who are novices or have very little information. So, you know, kudos to the, the reputable folks who understand that the actual care of the animals is not a volunteer scenario. Painting their little areas in front or, you know, weeds or flowers or, you know, some light care, but it requires, it requires staff that are on staff and paid to take care of those animals and understand them. So I can't even, I don't know if you've had that situation, but I can't even imagine what that would be like to come into a place with a lot of volunteers. Thanks with facilities that size that if they get in their area where people's homes, families, businesses are compromised, that they're going to see a downturn in how many of their staff are going to show up. They, because if somebody's house is blown out, there's a likelihood they will well, not be showing up. Well, very good point. Yeah, because if it's impacted in the area, they might not even be able to get there. Exactly. And so, and then there's that effect of somebody being a full-time staff member who they're part of a ride-out team. They're expecting this as their role. And there's, you know, down to volunteers who are periodic volunteers. And what's going to be the level of dedication to show up, be there, and be able to be there as a productive member right. of what's happening. Uh, that I think is the other piece. And so ZDR3, at no point do we self-deploy. Um, we do not scan watching for disasters and then show up at somebody's doorstep. Anytime that we are coming somewhere, it's because we've been specifically requested by the facility to be there. And that's really critical because when folks have been hit by a especially something like a high impact hurricane event, they're likely having their own trauma reaction and having an influx of uninvited help can have the opposite effect. And so one of the things that we make sure that sure. we're doing is we phase in support. And so while there are some situations that doing an immediate show of force and bringing in lots of boots is the appropriate reaction Generally, it's more important to get an on-the-ground truthing of what's happening and then phasing in help as the facility is able to ingest it. And their level of personnel, both staffing-wise and capacity-wise, is part of what dictates that because we have to make sure the folks coming in either have points of contact, that the situation's reasonably contained. Yeah. You can't overwhelm these folks. Oh, absolutely. So, Julia, for... Um, you're an animal professional long before you, you started the, uh, became the executive director. Give, give our listeners again, not animal folks, an idea of what happens at a zoo. Let's say there's an imminent hurricane. You've got a, a decent size zoo with a lot of animals. You just mentioned riding it out. What does it look like? Do they keep, do the keepers stay they're at the zoo, they, they hunker down. What, what goes on internally in those situations? Yeah. So every facility is different, but generally speaking, when, especially facilities that are in areas that receive hurricane impact a lot or you see situations, they generally have lockdown procedures. So the animals have um, more secure housing they're put in, whether it be dens or some places do have hurricane proofing, um, 
if it's really going to be a significant event, sometimes animals be moved around internally to safer locations right. and evacuation for as much as it's talked about is really something to be only done a super last ditch because there are all sorts of risks that come into play with evacuation. Um, so a lot of folks employ what's called a shelter in place strategy. And that's where you're basically hardening yourself to withstand the impact. And so there's the animal piece. And then corollary to that is how are you maintaining your staffing? And so facilities will have some call them ride out teams, some call them storm rider teams, and it's your core personnel. And it's not just animal keepers, different facilities staff differently, but usually you're going to want some ops people, somebody yeah. in a leadership capacity, um, folks who can keep the operation running during the event and then deal with whatever may happen in the immediate aftermath and are able to subsist in the location until folks can get to them from the outside. And so where ZDR3 ends up coming into play is at times we're warned ahead of time that a facility anticipates a hit and we're gearing up simultaneous to them riding it out. Other times it's after that staff has had the opportunity to assess the situation on the ground and only when they get that outside contact to the world that that notification happens. Um, and so it's very important that these facilities think through how to harden themselves for these events because that's a whole lot of preparatory work yeah. and you can't you can't just in time that whole process. Yeah. And boy, if you ever want to be around a hearty group of people who will go the distance and make it work one way or another, it's folks who care for animals. I mean, whether it's the agriculture community, the zoo community, exhibited animal, you know, and, and my, the, my beef with the animal rights community is they're not the ones there doing this. They're the ones out raising money over these things, but they're not the ones with their boots on and their raincoats or whatever it is, their Carhartts, out helping thaw out, you know, frozen water or disasters at places. So uh, truly the hardiest group of people you'll ever meet are the ones who care for animals. And the, the second piece of that is they always say that, you know, we're just making money off our animals. <laughs> if there's a group of people who deserve to be paid more beyond teachers and first responders, it's those who care for animals because nobody's in it for the money. They're in it because they love what they do. That's animal people share this special passion. And so when ZDR3 responds to a facility, there's not a cost to the facility. That cost is being incurred by the responding location, which is a tremendous gift, um, both wow. in terms of staff time and experience, but also just monetary cost for fuel, equipment, you yeah. name it. Um, and time and again, we've seen folks go above and beyond. And you mentioned earlier, um, K Rose Air and Big Cat Habitat. And that's that's a really amazing team down in Florida. Oh, yeah. I, I had the pleasure of working with them during Hurricane Ian. Um, they do all sorts of really good work helping folks in the state who are having these different challenges and looking toward this intensifying hurricane environment um, with specific thought to Florida. I think about you guys a lot, yeah. um, you know, having these uh, facilities who are willing to put forward these teams is really essential because if we don't as an industry address our own challenges, somebody from the outside will come in and do it for us. Yes. And I do not think we will like those solutions as much. No, that's why I'm another reason it's just amazing you guys are here. The Humane Society of the United States goes in and does uh, dog um, and or pet, you know, they confiscate animals and such or help in disasters. But um, 
they're not experts at it. And I I have long worried that they're going to start moving that up. And, and if they haven't already, getting into more of the uh, exotic animals and the facilities. So if we don't do it ourselves, someone will put something in place. So I can only imagine this is going to expand exponentially. And uh, you've certainly got your work cut out for you. But what would you like to leave folks with? Let's say you're um, they're not animal people who work at zoos or that, but maybe they'd like to either be part of the solution to figure out how they could help out and or with their own pets. Do you have any advice to offer? Um, so with regards to folks and their own pets, have have a plan in place for whatever may occur that is realistic and actionable and that if you as the primary caretaker are not able to facilitate that somebody else can facilitate on your behalf so that always think through the worst case scenario including that you might not be in the picture when the event is occurring um, in terms of how you can be more a part of the solution zdr3 we of course greatly appreciate any sort of support um, we have a very robust website and facebook presence but also really supporting your community facilities, your local zoo, aquarium, and being mindful of what types of impacts could jolt them within your community and being supportive of them if they do take a hit. Because when a facility is impacted, whether it's a large scale event like a hurricane or something smaller scale um, that's a more localized situation, those sites do not generally have the budget where they have anticipated that kind of discretionary hit. And so being fiscally supportive, continuing visitation, and understanding that everybody is having challenges adapting to the new disaster ecosystem that we're in. And Mm -hmm. folks are trying very hard to rapid adapt. And I think having rational expectations of people is really important. Terrific. Yeah, great advice. I couldn't agree more. Don't assume that you're going to be the one handling your pet situation in in any any of these scenarios. Well, again, Julia, thank you so much for what you're, you're doing. And um, I will look it up more. I'd love to be a part of it as well. You guys do such great work and uh, and badly needed. And I'm, I know you'll be expanding. <laughs> thank you so much for your time and attention to this matter. Thank you. I've been so privileged to have grown up around animal experts and folks who helped each other when there was a need or some type of a disaster or emergency. I'm thrilled that ZDR is now out there as an organization at the ready to help these amazing animals and the great folks who care for them. Hopefully you've also learned a little bit more about what to do for your own pet in an emergency. When you can, of course, go see for yourself. Go to the facilities, go to the zoos, the animal facilities, see the beautiful animals, and talk to the animal experts, and even volunteer to be a part of it. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, rate and review it, and I do hope you'll share these stories. It's important for me to tell these stories about the beautiful animals and the amazing people. And I hope you'll join me next time for more animal tales.